going to take a journey through the book of Romans. We would spend a few weeks here. And then I decidedly didn't do that after the first week. I went on vacation. I didn't feel like it was the sermon for the next one. And then last week was Pentecost and we celebrated. But we are back in the book of Romans. And today our scripture verse is Romans chapter 2, verses 13. I told the chapel service that Davis Johnson, our former associate pastor, would give me a piece of chocolate for choosing a single verse. I never do that. And he would go, good for you, not reading chapters. But I will say that this verse is part of a larger portion of Scripture that begins back in chapter 1, verse 18, and runs into the fourth chapter. And I invite you and encourage and implore you to read that larger passage and sit with it. It all informs the sermon this morning. But our key passage that we are focusing on is Romans chapter 2, verse 13. I'm reading out of the Contemporary English Bible. It isn't the ones who hear the law who are righteous in God's eyes. It is the ones who do what the law says who will be treated as righteous. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I remind you that as we begin looking at the book of Romans, that Paul is writing to the church, to the believers who are in the city of Rome. Now, the Roman church was not a church that he founded. It's not one of his. And he, at this point, has never been to Rome. So he's introducing himself. This letter becomes his longest explanation of the theology that he believes. He's writing because he wants them to be his base of operation, for him to take the gospel even further to the west. He wants to take the gospel all the way to Spain. So he introduces and he lays the foundation. But the churches shared info about each other. They know what's going on in the different churches. They pray for one another. They give and help one another. And so he also writes to help them grow in their faith to be a better and more faithful church as he does. So the church in Rome has been made up of Jewish believers people who had been part of the Jewish faith, who then believed in Jesus as their Messiah. It was also made up of non-Jewish believers, who we call Gentile believers in Jesus. And they were figuring out how to get along together, how to be part of the church, when they had different backgrounds, different expressions of faith that they brought with them to this new thing of following Jesus. And I'm sure that wasn't without conflict, but somewhere in the latter part of the reign of Claudius of the Emperor Claudius, who reigned from AD 41 to 54, he kicked all of the Jews out of the city of Rome. He said, I am tired of y'all fighting over this Christus fella, over Jesus Christ. Y'all just all get out. Just get out of the city of Rome. And he made them stay out for around five years. So when the Jews were allowed to come back to the city of Rome and they come back to the church, the church is very different than it was when they left it. Of course it was. And what the Jewish believers who have returned don't realize is that they too are different than they were before they left. And it is to that situation that Paul writes this letter and tries to help them find a way forward. The church has changed because what happened is when the Jewish believers were removed from the context, the church became very Gentile in its expression. 
they no longer did a lot of the Jewish kinds of things that they had done before. Maybe Sabbath keeping, maybe keeping some of the dietary laws. We know that these are conversations that the early church had regularly. But how do we not offend our Jewish brothers and sisters? But how do we not make everybody convert to Judaism in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ? That conversation didn't have to happen while the Jewish believers were gone. There have been new converts who weren't there during that time. And then there's a group of people who come back and they're like, well, what happened? Well, we weren't eating pork. And why are we not keeping the Sabbath? And why did nobody mention Passover this year? Like, what are, what are we thinking? And the new people who have converted since they left are going, who are you? And like, why are you causing trouble? Like, this is who we are. And Paul writes to them to urge them to find a way to be followers of Jesus together. There had been a balance with Jewish believers and Gentile believers. They helped each other find the way together. And it turns out they were not as strong. They were not as healthy. They were not as much like the kingdom of God when they were separated as they were when they are together. And now there's a little friction as they figure out how to be back together. There's a balance between rules and freedom. In the Old Testament, we hear a lot about the law. And in the New Testament, we hear a lot about the law of grace and the leading of the Holy Spirit. And you can go too far toward the law and get into legalism. And you can go too far toward grace and get into non-obedience. But there's a balance in the middle. There's a balance between righteousness and liberty, between holiness and mercy. And that, my friends, is a very Methodist thing. We're a Methodist church. And people say, but isn't God a just God? Yes. And others say, but God is a God of mercy. And we say, yes. Well, which is he? Yes. God is a God of righteousness and mercy. Of grace and righteousness. We're both and people. We figure out how to bring things that are different, that don't seem to fit together, and they fit together in Jesus Christ in a way that is beautiful. And makes a place for all. And in trying to bring these groups together, he uses some rhetorical devices, some debating tactics. Rather than going right at a group and saying, you are wrong for still doing that Sabbath-keeping stuff. You need to get with the new things and give all that up. He doesn't say that to them. He also doesn't go with the Gentiles and go, don't you know that you have been pagans and heathens? And you've been grafted into the people who are God's chosen people. You ought to be grateful for that. Stop being ugly to them and do what they tell you to do. He doesn't do that. What he does is he, ch- he challenges their attitude toward one another. He says, I'm not saying that you are, should not keep the Sabbath. If that is how you worship and that is your expression, then by all means keep the Sabbath. But don't try to make everybody keep the Sabbath the way you do. And no, you may not keep the Sabbath, but you're not allowed to look down your nose at your fellow brothers and sisters, your siblings in Christ who do. And then he goes on to show them how they're both being know-it-alls. They're both being a little arrogant. They're both being a little bit hard and difficult to deal with. They're both focused on the speck in the other's eye instead of the log in their own. That ought to sound familiar if you've been in church much. We go all the way back to Matthew chapter 7, the first five verses there, part of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, 
don't be about judging. For however you judge, that's the standard that's going to be used against you. Instead, like focus on the big log that you have in your own eye before you're trying to get the speck out of your siblings over here. Because once you clean up your own eyesight, then you'll be able to see more clearly how to help them get the things that are blurring their vision. In other words, we turn the spotlight on ourselves first. We look at how we can line ourselves up with Christ and then we can inspire others. And we do that first by listening and understanding, by seeing that they have a speck in their eye, noticing what that speck is, and then lovingly finding a way to move forward together. Paul insists that none of us, not a single one of us, are able to live up to God's standards on our own. Our God created a good world. He created a good world. We're the ones who messed it up. We're the ones who broke it. And now that brokenness in us and that brokenness in the world is so pervasive that we are not able to put it back together on our own. The best of humanity and what is in us is not enough to operate and live as God wants us to live. We are dependent on what Jesus Christ did to bring reconciliation between us and God. And even that, God doesn't make us do on our own. God gives us the Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us, to teach us, to inspire us, to help us be the people that God would have us to be. Because that good world that God created and that good world that it will be restored to when Christ comes again in final victory, which you hear in the communion liturgy, make us one. One with you, O God. One in ministry with one another and in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory. That final victory is this world operating the way God created it to operate. God's world operates on a currency of love and justice and righteousness are outcroppings of love. But due to human nature, Because of our disobedience, our human nature is to do the opposite of love. We forget that others are made in the image of God. We forget that each person is of sacred worth. We forget that Christ came and lived and died, was resurrected, and now advocates for us, sits at the right hand of God the Father, Scripture says, and prays for us to be who God wants us to be, that Jesus did that for each and every person who has ever been on this planet or ever will be just as much as he did for us. And when we fail to realize that and act in accordance with that, we dehumanize one another. We treat one another like objects. Sexual objects, economic objects, political objects, power objects. When people spread fake news and conspiracy theories, when they twist the truth to try to manipulate and keep people in fear and bondage because of misinformation, they are dehumanizing those populations. When we sexualize everything, we dehumanize one another. Lust is the antithesis of love because it makes gratification the goal, our gratification. And we look at others only as a means to an end for that gratification. That was a big one for the Roman believers. 
I could not address this text without mentioning that. The Roman world in which they lived was incredibly sexualized. And so much of it was manipulative and exploitative. And Paul, in several of his letters, not just this one, talks about not exploiting one another. And if we fail to understand the context that Paul writes this letter in, then we can take Paul's admonition not to make other people objects, not to dehumanize other people, and we can actually take that and manipulate it and make it a way in which we are dehumanizing one another. When we use one another as economic tools, we dehumanize one another. We as Christians are not allowed to only care about ourselves and our gain and how we will get ahead and what it means to us. We have an obligation to think beyond ourselves. We are not allowed to say, that's not my problem. I just want what I want. We don't get to center ourselves and expect the universe to revolve around us. That's not what following Christ is about. Being a Christian is centering Jesus Christ and allowing everything in our lives to revolve around Christ. It also means that we work toward a world where Christ and Christ's teachings are centered. We want a world where everyone is loved, found to be of sacred worth, has opportunity, has enough, where righteousness and justice are found with great liberality. So some of you are saying, but what does that have to do with this Romans passage? Like, what does that have to do with Romans 2.13? Hear it in a little larger context. Romans 2.11-14. For God shows no partiality. All who have sinned apart from the law, that'd be Gentiles, will perish apart from the law. And all who have sinned under the law, that'd be the Jews, Jewish people, will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers who are righteous in God's sight, but the doers who will be justified. When Gentiles who do not possess the law do instinctively what the law requires, these, though they don't have the law, become faithful to the law. You see, the Jewish people thought they were the teacher's pet. They were the favorite child. They had a head start, an extra blessing, a pass. They didn't have to follow all the rules because they were God's favorite. They were God's chosen people. And Paul reminds them, being God's chosen people was never about getting away with anything. If anything, you've been closer to God. You've been on the inside. You've had an inside look at how God wants the world to operate, how He wants people to treat one another. All of that that He gave you in the law was about how to love one another and treat one another lovingly. Of all the people groups, you should know what He's talking about. It's not a pass. It's not an extra in. And He says, and I look at Gentile people and I see some of them living like God told us to live. I see the Holy Spirit at work in people who were not born into our faith. And when they do that, what is happening is that the law is being written on their hearts. Now, that was a big thing. Some of those Jewish believers would have felt pinched by that because they knew that the Old Testament prophets had talked about, particularly Isaiah, a day when we wouldn't need 613 rules of the law 
All we would need was God's Spirit, which would live so in and among us that the law would be written on our hearts. We would be instinctively who God called us to be. And we believe that that began to happen in Jesus Christ. With the sending of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, God is writing God's law on our heart. We listen to and we respond to God's Holy Spirit. It's not enough just to hear it. We have to do it. And we're not earning our faith. We're responding to it. We're not being forced to do this. We are inspired by the example of Jesus Christ. We do it out of gratitude, not fear. Because Jesus is our Savior, we live lives of love and grace and mercy. We pursue righteousness in our own life and justice in the world around us because for God so loved the world. That's me, that's you, and that's every single human being as well as creation. For God so loved that He sent His Son that we might not perish, but that we might have life everlasting. Paul talks to them about how they find a way to be together. We search for win-win situations. And Paul's interaction with the churches of the New Testament are about finding a way so that we don't have winners and losers, but we have a family that moves forward with God. How do we cooperate? I invite you to consider this morning how you are living a life of love. How are you cooperating? How are you seeking win-win situations? How are you seeking peace with justice in the world? How are you seeking unity and not uniformity? We're not always going to agree about the how. But we must agree, if we are followers of Jesus, that we have to figure it out. We have to seek a world where God reigns. Let's pray. Almighty, gracious, and loving God, you who created a good and perfect world, a world that operated on justice and righteousness and holiness and mercy, a God of love is who you are. May we become ever aware of your presence. May we seek to live our lives recognizing your love for us and your great love for each person we encounter. May we seek to live lives that respond to your grace, your mercy, lives of righteousness. May we seek a world that operates as you would have it, a world of justice where each one is loved and valued. Give us glad and generous hearts. Write your law on our heart by your Holy Spirit in whose name We live and move and have our being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.